Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. After Syrians and Afghans, the largest nationality of people who are fleeing as refugees to Europe are Eritreans, and the vast majority of Eritreans who are fleeing to Europe are young people between the ages of 18 and 24 who are escaping an oppressive system of compulsory national service. Now, national service itself is not a problem. Lots of liberal democracies have some sort of draft or conscription. But the system of national service in Eritrea takes this to an extreme and has become a system of forced labor and population control. Amnesty International recently published a report on this issue called Just Deserters, Why Indefinite National Service in Eritrea Has Created a Generation of Refugees. The report explores in depth the human rights abuses of this system and its implications for global security. And on the line with me to discuss this issue is the report's lead author, Claire Beston. We discuss how this system works, why so many young Eritreans are fleeing the country, and why governments in Europe are turning a blind eye to this major driver of refugees to their shore. Now, the situation in Eritrea is pretty well known among those of us who follow human rights issues pretty closely. But among the general public, I'd say it's not uh, as well known as the rogue nation that it really is. I mean, there is a shorthand that I don't really like using, but some folks call Eritrea the North Korea of Africa. And the comparison is that this is also a paranoid and brutally repressive regime, except it's not one that's really captured, I think, our popular imagination in the same way that North Korea has. And we discussed that dynamic and its implications for asylum policies in Europe. As always, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archive, subscribe on iTunes, send me a note. You can get our free mobile app for your Android or iPhone devices where you can listen to Global Dispatches podcast directly without having to go through any Apple products. And now here is my conversation with Claire Beston. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So national service in Eritrea is compulsory for all adults, and it's meant to last for 18 months, which should be six months of military training and then a year's deployment. But in practice, it is, in a high proportion of cases, extended indefinitely, so people can spend 10, 15, even 20 years in uh, conscripted international service a lot of conscripts are assigned to the uh, military and security forces, but also a high proportion of them are assigned to civilian duties, which include agricultural work in states, government-owned farms, construction work, um, teaching, 
civil service posts, national and local administration posts, uh, and a whole range of, of other work. So the system constitutes forced labor as defined and prohibited under international law. National service is exempt from prohibitions on forced labor under international law, but this is for, uh, first of all, deployment that is of a military nature and also is finite only to what is necessary in regards to the situation. Uh, so in Eritrea, because it's indefinite and also because a high proportion of conscripts are assigned to non-military roles, it falls into the de- definition of forced labor and it takes place on a national scale. So this is different. I mean, um, many liberal democracies, of course, have forms of national service. Many in Western Europe, you know, you, you, after high school, you're expected to serve in the military or, or serve in, in, national, in some sort of national capacity. But this departs from those norms in pretty profound ways, you're saying. Yeah, as I said, national service isn't uh, prohibited. Uh, it's actually specified in international law on um, prohibitions of forced labor and exemption for national service. But it has to be of military character and it has to be um, limited to what is necessary for that situation. Uh, this in Eritrea goes completely beyond that. It's a totally different system. And actually a lot of state institutions are um, staffed by conscripted labor and it affects the entire population. It also, um, although officially it only starts at 18 and therefore is, uh, affects the adult population, all methods of conscription result in the conscription of children into military training. This is via the school system, wherein all school children have to undertake the last uh, grade of secondary school, 12th grade, in a national service training camp, which is a year spent on the last year of their schooling, but also spent doing military training and living in military-style conditions, um, facing military-style discipline uh, and very harsh uh, circumstances. The second means of conscription is in what are called roundups, where the military go to different parts of the country on a regular basis and will just stop, temporarily detain everyone and check their papers. And people who are of national service age and don't have a valid uh, reason to not be in national service, a student ID or exemption on medical grounds, um, will be rounded up immediately and taken to military training. The third avenue by which people are conscripted is when they are caught trying to flee the country and detained and then after their period of detention are then sent for military training. And all of these methods have involved the conscription of children. What you're describing, it seems to be, is the government using national service as little more than a means of population control. Well, actually, in asking me that question, you remind me of one lady I interviewed who'd spent 10 years working in a... um, government-owned farm as conscripted labor and she actually said those exact words and she said this even the work we did was pointless i think it's just done to controllers um the the state is however quite dependent on conscripted labor because conscripts staff so many civil service posts and state institutions the government says that the reason they need to indefinitely extends national service for such a high proportion of people is because of the ever-present threat from their neighbor Ethiopia, with whom there's long-standing hostility. Um, but the fact that a high proportion of conscripts are assigned to civilian duties undermines this justification. It, it belies that reasoning on the part of the government. Um, the Even... Uh, 
in addition to those people who are already conscripted into national service, there's actually been an expansion in the imposition of forced labour on the population in the last couple of years because older people up to 65 or even 70 years old have in the last two years been conscripted into what's been called the People's Army, which is a form of civilian militia, uh, whereby older people are ordered to report for duty, taken for refresher training, and then assigned to various duties which they are not paid for and which they will face penalties um, for failing to comply, including imprisonment. Uh, So a report from the UN Human Rights Council published earlier this year alleged really widespread torture in uh, the context of of conscription and in barracks and in in sort of the the military where people who are, you know, had some sort of administrative infraction or tried to, to leave were pretty brutally tortured and and the 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 human rights report goes into pretty excruciating detail into the kinds of torture that would be inflicted upon people like putting bugs and spiders and ants on people after covering them with sugar hanging them upside down by by trees um i I guess does your report does amnesty's report corroborate those claims in any way the the first thing to say is that uh detention of uh, people who are trying to evade, desert, flee the country to avoid national service is arbitrary. People are detained without charge, without trial, without access to a lawyer. Um, so this is this is taking place outside of any form of rule of law, which in every case increases people's uh, risk of being subjected to torture. And yes, torture is happening in Eritrea. Um, it's was reported by people we interviewed during this report for this report, including um, by people who actually performed acts of torture and told us about, um, for example, how when people were caught leaving the country, they would be interrogated about why they were leaving, how they were leaving, who was assisting them to leave. And uh, sometimes methods of torture would be used to extract that or to attempt to extract that information. So you interviewed torturers? Uh, you we interviewed... Yes. What, what was that like? Um, I, I suppose in my researcher brain, I first of all wanted to know the details uh, of the methods of torture that were used, um, when it was used, how frequently it was used, in what context. Um, you know, if you do uh, human rights research, you you meet a, a range of people who have had a range of experiences, and um, it's. I, don't know, I find that question quite hard to answer, actually. I mean, I, I, um, in what context did you meet him? I mean, did you say, okay, let's, let's meet up in my office? I, I, like, it just, it seems like, um, really like a, a profoundly difficult interview, I would imagine, to, to conduct, or perhaps not because you're so used to it. You're an experienced human rights researcher. Yeah, I think, I think there is something to that that, uh, you know, I've, I've conducted interviews with a, a vast range of people who've committed or experienced a range of human rights violations in various countries. Um, and actually, uh, the young man that we interviewed who'd been in the police and, and was telling us this was just 
uh, he was a conscript himself. He was conscripted into the police, um, and he was following orders, which is not, uh, you know, under international law and prohibitions on torture, following orders is not a valid excuse for committing acts of torture. But uh, it did take, yeah, it took me by surprise, certainly, when I thought it was, um, you know, uh, an interview with a former conscript that might be similar to some of the other interviews I'd conducted. And actually, this young man has had quite a different experience. And it took me by surprise, but, um, you know, the analytical brain wants the details uh, of the situation, first of all. Um, so one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you and, and talk about the situation in Eritrea, specifically the, the, the National Service Program, is because there are actually really profound, I think, global implications of this National Service Program uh, because it's causing so many people to flee. Uh, what is it? After Syrians and Afghans, the number three top uh, asylum seeker to Europe is an Eritrean. Is that right? Um, this summer during the, the refugee crisis, uh, as it's been called in the Mediterranean, the third largest group were Eritreans. That's right. After Syrians and Afghans. And by and, and large, so, young people are trying to flee this oppressive regime. Well, uh, late last year, the UN Refugee Agency, the UNHCR, said that 90% of all Eritreans arriving in Europe were between 18 and 24 years old. Um, so it is often young people. And it was notable that among the people we interviewed for this report, there was a high proportion of 16 and 17 year olds. So there were people who were fleeing from conscription, including people who'd been conscripted for up to 15 years. But there were also a lot of young people who were fleeing before they were conscripted because they'd seen their parents and they'd seen their older siblings trapped in this system of indefinite forced labor with no choice over key aspects of their life, such as choice over the work that they did and being able to earn a living wage to even meet their basic needs, choice over education opportunities. And young people saying, I'm, I don't want that life and I'm going to avoid it at all costs. And actually, national, the, the whole national service system is having a really highly negative impact on children in a number of ways because not only are children conscripted, as I explained before, because parents are conscripted long term, children take on the economic burden of families at an early age. Uh, for girls, some of them are married off early by their families in the hope that this will um, enable an exemption from national service. Um, also, as I said, children are among those evading and fleeing the country to try and avoid the system and being caught, detained arbitrarily without charge in appalling conditions. Um, and children are among those who are walking to other countries to try and escape this life, and in doing so, exposing themselves to extremely hazardous journeys. Um, so if the, the third you know, largest cohort of people fleeing to Europe uh, over the summer amidst this, this large uh, refugee wave were Eritreans, and they were Eritreans who were fleeing this oppressive national service. Has that translated into any form of political action among European governments to try to influence or, um, or, or somehow compel Eritrea to reform its national service system? Um, well, first of all, I'd like to uh, 
take that question to raise a related issue, which is that what we have seen in the last year or two, um, very troublingly, is that a number of countries where Eritreans have claimed asylum are, have tried to suggest that there's been an improvement in the situation in Eritrea and in practices of national service to the point that Eritreans no longer have a valid basis to claim asylum. Uh, so, for example, the UK in the last six months has rejected 64% of all Eritrean asylum applications. Um, which is a disgraceful figure and, and it's incredibly troubling because uh, there haven't been any changes in national service conscription. It continues to be indefinite and it continues to amount to forced labour. Plus, the treatment of people fleeing that system who are caught on the border and detained arbitrarily without charge and at risk of being tortured has to be taken as an indication of what would happen to anyone who successfully fled the country but then is forcibly returned when their asylum application is rejected. So that's a really troubling um, development. Wait, has, has the UK actually refouled, I think is, is the, the technical term, Eritreans uh, whose asylum applications have been rejected? As far as uh, we know and the information available, no one has been returned yet. So after those asylum cases are rejected, uh, individuals have the right to appeal the decision. And I believe that appeals are going on in a high proportion of those cases. Um, so as, as far as we know, no one has yet been returned. And we really hope that this report that has been released today will influence the UK to reverse the decision in those cases um, and to recognise that anyone who is sent back to Eritrea is at severe risk of being subjected to human rights violations. I, I guess that sort of comes back to, to a point that Eritrea, though, you know, we in the know, we in the, like the human rights community or journalists like myself who cover international affairs, know Eritrea to be like a horribly repressive regime, but it hasn't kind of captured the, the sort of popular imagination in a way that, say, North Korea has. I mean, it would seem like, you know, obvious that no one would return or reject an asylum claim from an asylee from North Korea. But in Eritrea, because I think the... Um, there's just not not as much popular attention towards the oppressive conditions there that um, you know a country like the UK could plausibly you know reject an asylum claim. I think that's true, and I think um, that the the situation inside Eritrea is not well enough understood, and that that it was a very big reason for us doing this report, National Service. Uh, an indefinite conscription international service has been going on for a long time and Amnesty has published about it before as have other actors but um, the claims by the UK and other governments that things have changed and improved um, prompted this new research to have updated information that essentially shows nothing has changed and as we mentioned in the refugee crisis this summer in Europe um, the third biggest group crossing the Mediterranean were Eritreans after Syrians and Afghans. And I think that there's been a lot more publicity and it's perhaps a little better understood what Syrians and Afghans are fleeing from. But in Eritrea, tiny country, which a lot of people have actually never even heard of, uh, with no ongoing armed conflict, um, there isn't a very good understanding of what causes people to flee. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, a lot of voices in, in Europe, in asylum host countries, have tried to claim that Eritreans are economic migrants and they're going to look for job opportunities, uh, educational opportunities. 
And um, to some extent, that, that is what Eritreans are doing. But to argue they're economic migrants is to entirely miss the point that they're looking for those opportunities abroad because at home they can't access them because they're trapped into indefinite forced labour uh, on pay on work that they have no choice over and on pay that doesn't enable them to survive economically. I mean, basically like escaping slavery. Uh, yeah, essentially that's what that's what it is. They're fleeing uh, to avoid being or to escape from being subject to that system, which is forced labor on a national scale. Do, are there any reliable numbers of uh, or statistics on the number of Eritreans who have fled? Um, the yeah, the I can't remember what they are off the top of my head, but the UNHCR has statistics on on the total number of Eritreans in exile. Um, I, I guess again, what what is is so interesting to me from like an international relations perspective is is, is how this one system of national service could have again, like profound political consequences inside Europe, yet Europeans don't seem to be doing all they can to, um, you know, affect or change the behavior of Eritrea to the extent that they might be able to. Like, Eritrea is not considered that much of a rogue nation. Well, actually, and and that was a question you asked earlier, and I didn't uh, finish the second half of it. Um, European countries are trying and have tried to engage with Eritrea to um, uh, to try and improve the situation. For a long time, Eritrea has been very isolated from the international community, partly uh, through its own choice, and um, has rejected a lot of offers of international development assistance, aid, etc. Um, the, the international community is now trying again to engage on that level. And, for example, recently it was reported that the European Union had a $220 million plan to fund the demobilization of some long-serving conscripts. Um, But the plan was ultimately rejected by the Eritrean government on the basis that no one could be exempt from their uh, national duty. So I think it's an ongoing process uh, of the European countries particularly to try to uh, have some influence on the situation in Eritrea. But that situation is is pretty intractable. It's been the same for a long time and um, it's been difficult for all actors to try and improve the situation to have some impact on it uh, to a positive effect. Uh, well, Claire, thank you so much for your time for writing this report and, and helping to shed light on this situation. Alrighty, thank you guys all for listening. As always, go to globaldispatchespodcast.com if you want to get in touch with me. If you want to sign up for my daily global humanitarian news clip service that I run with my friend and partner, Tom Murphy, go to dawnsdigest.com, D-A-W-N-S digest.com. It's free uh, and a lot of people love it and love receiving global humanitarian news clips first thing in the morning. All right, we'll see you later. Bye.